Well, good morning, Jason. Good morning, what, man. Uh, what, are, what are we going to talk about on this episode of Put Him on the Couch? Uh, I'll give you a little hint. All right, give me a hint. You make it so good, I don't want to leave, but I got to know what your yeah. Okay. All right. It's ludicrous. Yeah. Fantasy. I'm yeah. not sure. Where, where are we going with this? We're going to talk about sex. Oh. Oh, yeah. And just like that, we are back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Jason McCoy, alongside my confidant friend and... Again, bird watcher. Nelson Bowyer. Nelson. Mr. Ornithologist himself. How's it going? You know I'm terrified of birds. I know you keep terrified saying that. Terrified of birds. Each and every Why do you episode. Call me a bird watcher? Each and every episode. There is some other thing that you do that proves that you are the bird watcher. You know, so, we're gonna have a t shirt or a bumper sticker one day that's like Put them on the couch with Jason McCoy, the sight guy, and Nelson Bowyer, the, the bird watcher. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, man, before we get into this episode too deep, I should warn you that my mother-in-law uh, does listen to our podcast, so this will be an interesting topic. Well, good thing I didn't play too much of Ludacris's fantasy. Do you know how many times he references sex in that song? I I mean, the whole point of the song is sex. I mean, I'm, I'll guess... 12. Okay, so I should clarify. Do you know how many times, do you know how many different places or ways he suggests that he would like to Yeah, that's what I was going. I'm saying 12. 21. At least 21 I counted. Uh, 50-yard line of the Georgia Dome. Well, do you count that twice? Because he says 50-yard line of the Georgia Dome while the Dirty Birds kick for three. So that that could be two references, right? That's right. That's why I said at least 21. On a horse. When I talked to my wife about this, horse. she said, you know, I'm just too practical. That does not sound that fun. Yeah. So, On a horse. Yeah, so, I mean, that's such an interesting song, right? I mean, it, of all the music in the world, I wonder what percentage focuses on sex. Well, <clears throat> when you Google um, 40th sexy songs, Ludacris is maybe the 20th. Uh, there are songs that apparently... I shouldn't say apparently. There are songs that are definitely more prurient, more focused on sex than even Ludacris' song Fantasy. Sure, like Marvin Gaye. David Banner's play. Um, Okay. This thing, if you were to take out the explicit references, you would just be left with like two or three words. But doesn't that sort of speak to the fundamental importance of sex in our lives? Yes, absolutely. So I think uh, I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I heard this once, right? Half of the streaming content on the internet is either pornography or cat videos. Meow. But those two activities yes. make up. I yeah. don't know if, if you that's had true. A, if you had a Venn diagram, not. there would be two overlapping circles, cat videos, pornographic material. And then there'd be a slight section in the middle where the two meet. Did you watch a lot of pornography to prepare for this episode? I did not, not <laughs> on purpose. I've watched a lot of pornography in my life, but I didn't watch anything explicitly in preparation for this podcast. No, no we watched a couple of things. We watched a, uh, there's a show on Netflix that has to do with a uh, female pleasure, Okay, which I thought was really interesting in well, the show. Oh, it said that 66% of women, when they have sex, or 
66% of the time that women have sex, they don't have uh, an orgasm. Yeah, that's that's uh, roughly based <laughs> on the work of a sociologist named Ed Lohman from uh, the University of Chicago. I believe 1994, he did a sex survey, if you will, um, where he asked about 6,500 or so individuals um, between the ages of about, I guess, 18 and 69, about how often they orgasm. And what he found was, and this has been consistent with many surveys I'm familiar with, 75% of men say that they orgasm every time they have sex. 25% of women say they orgasm every time they have sex. So there's clearly an orgasm gap. Now, whether or not that matters is kind of a different story. Some feminists will say, well, don't medicalize me just because I'm not having an orgasm doesn't mean anything wrong with anything's wrong with me. Perhaps there's something wrong with your foreplay or something wrong with you, right? Sure. Sex is everywhere, right? It's Absolutely. in our computer. It's in our research. It's in our music. It's everywhere. It's in our brains. It's everywhere, yeah. right? What What do you think it is about this particular activity that is so connected and fundamental to the good life? Or let me ask it another way. Mm-hmm. Do I need, do we need to have good sex in order to live a complete and good life? Well, I'd rather approach the first question first, the one you mentioned. Uh, what is it about sex that contributes to the good life? I would say just like having a basic level of health, without sex, there'd be no life. It's At least true. for most of the complex species on this earth. I say most because, yes, there are some species, we believe, that can actually um, make copies of themselves that are multicellular, by the way, without having sex. The whiptail lizard comes to mind. Look that one up, ladies and gentlemen. But no, if you don't have sex, even bad sex, at least once, you're not gonna make copies of yourself. And so for people like you and me, we're not whiptail lizards. No, um, we wouldn't be here. So one thing's for certain. We know that sex is inexorably linked to life for most multicellular organisms on this. I think it's just one of those things. It's interesting to look back through history. It's interesting to look back through politics and to see how connected everything is or could be to sex. I mean, the history of England really comes down to the tale of one man's penis in the 16th century. I mean, And I'm sure that you're going to tell me more about that on the other side. Let's take a quick break, get back, you can set the table and let's get into more specifics, uh, historical and otherwise. About let's do it. And we are back. Sex. It's not just a verb. It's the topic it's, of the day. It can also be a noun, an adjective, an adverb. Sex is very versatile in that way, isn't it? It's funny. It's kind of like the word fuck. Right. It's very much like that word in that it can be any of those things at any given moment. Depends how we want to use it. So let's set the table and I'll talk about how we have used it uh, a little bit throughout history. Sex. In some ways, it is the most important part, not just of our lives, but of all life. Stating the obvious. Every single one of us is only here as a direct result of a sexual encounter. And throughout history, civilizations, religions, and countless groups have not only been aware of that, but at various points have sought to explain, discuss, regulate, promote, limit, and control the type of sex we have. 
And as we wrap up our series on living the good life, let's throw shame, embarrassment, and modesty out the window. Sit back, relax. Don't think for a minute about the empire because we're about to put sex on the couch. Yes, yes, yes. All right. The sex happiness equation. You alluded to that before. Uh, How much sex do setting. I need Good to be job. happy? Well, according to research from the University of Switzerland, uh, Debro and others found that for those who admitted to having sex as a couple at least once a week, they were significantly more happy and satisfied in their relationship than those couples who on average had sex less than once a month. Now, how significant was the difference, you might ask? The difference was about the same as those couples who said they made $75,000 a year wow. versus $25,000 a year. Wow. So I think what we're finding here is that if you're poor, but you're having a lot of sex, then maybe that'll make up for the fact that you're not making a lot of money. Wow. How about that? So look, wow. ladies and gentlemen, what you've learned on this podcast over the last couple of weeks is instead of going to work and trying to earn more money, Instead of thumbing through the one ads or however it is you find jobs these days, maybe you just need to keep a gratitude journal and write love letters to your significant other. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah. At least with my significant other, I don't think that I would have more sex by writing more love letters. Well, that's a good question, too, is like what women want versus what, what do men women, want. That's you know? a very good question. Um, now, this researcher, Debro from University of Switzerland, her colleagues or his colleagues also found um, some interesting stuff related to things that we think about as accoutrements to or, uh, or preludes to sex, right? So hugging, kissing, um, outer course. Outer course? Yeah, outer course is when you like pet or rub or massage, those okay. kinds of things that might lead to intercourse, but that are not necessarily penetrative and that you don't necessarily need to take your clothes off for. Okay. Uh, which, by the way, is something that sex therapists across the world have and continue to promote um, in sex therapy is this idea of sometimes taking the pressure off, sometimes reducing the anxiety um, by encouraging couples or, you know, individuals to perform more outer course, more sort of touching, fondling, those kinds of things. This is particularly helpful for those, those couples that might have some anxiety issues, sure, some, some sure. hangups about sex being dirty or, and the like. So look, there's this old, uh, you know, there's, there's an old stereotype about married couples or marriages in general yeah. that, you know, people have less sex when they're married. But is that true? Uh, you know, do we find single people having more sex or married people having more sex? Because to me, it would seem the opposite. It would seem like married people would have more sex because they have a partner right there. Um, you're absolutely right. So yeah, it's been a, somewhat of a misnomer to suggest that People who are single have more sex. Um, it is true that people who are single might have more variety in their sex, obviously have more sex partners. Um, there's probably... Well, it depends on the married person. <laughs> yeah, but now when it comes to married couples, if you, if you just look, say, over a year or two years, uh, you find that, yes, married couples do report having more sexual encounters than people who are not in a couple. A lot of, lot of time spent, you know... Uh, trying to find someone to have sex with, right? Trying to 
uh, groom yourself and get yourself ready to go out to meet someone that you could potentially get in a relationship with and possibly have sex with when you're single, as you may remember. Um, but yeah, if you're married, uh, there's a, there's a person there for you all the time. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be willing to have sex with you. doesn't mean that they're going to always feel like having sex, but, but yeah, uh, ostensibly you, you guys are both there. You love each other. You're willing. So, all right, there's, uh, I want to talk about a couple extremes. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I want to preface this a little bit by talking about my favorite topic other than sex, which is of course me. Okay. So, you know, Wife and I, we've been married for almost 20 years, well, almost 19 years, mm -hmm. which is also almost 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you've had sex at least two times because you got two kids. We've had sex at least two times. Okay. We've always just been really close and, uh, you know, we've enjoyed a fulfilling sex life. I personally could not imagine life, even as I age, even as I get past the point of where I'm trying to procreate or where my wife wants to procreate. Mm -hmm. Uh, I couldn't imagine a life, a good life, that didn't include sex. But what about these extremes? Uh, and I want to start with the extreme of celibacy. Once a month or less than once a month, that's, all, that's really hard to fathom. To me, it's such an important part of my life that if it wasn't occurring, if it was occurring that rarely, mm -hmm. uh, that would be, uh, and I'm sure my wife would say the same thing, that would not be good. It wouldn't be as fulfilling. That would not be So good. for you, good sex um, includes uh, frequent sex. And the frequency of which is something that to me, you happen to already uh, agree upon. Or, we agree upon. Yeah. Uh, we really do. We agree upon frequency. Mm -hmm. it, it's so dependent. It, it's such a hard question to answer because it's dependent on a couple. Mm. right? It, it, to yeah. me, it's not just, is it good for me? Is it good for you? It's dependent yeah. on our relationship. That, that's a good point. I mean our relationship you said that so that suggests there's a certain level of intimacy trust communication kind of that, that well, you know you that, guys have already built right you said yourself you guys have been together for a very 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 long time do you think good sex would be as likely or as possible for you and your significant other if you didn't have the kind of communication style you guys do and no, or if you I didn't think... and or if you didn't um find a person who was interested in reciprocating the frequency at least um that no i think for me there has to be some level of intimacy but it's not just for me right i mean this is a historical podcast so let's go back in time a little bit yeah. if you look at a society like ancient greece um they had uh, and again i, I want to be very clear when we talk about ancient civilizations we need to place them in their proper context we can't look at them through the prism of the 21st century with 21st century morals. No, if we did, everyone would be a pedophile, right? Everyone would be absolutely. me too. Absolutely. So they did have, uh, they did engage in Athens and in other city states in the mentor protege, protege relationship. This is where a Greek aristocrat of you know, 22, 23 would take on a, a mentor mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, take on a protege and the protege would be 12, 13, 14 years old, mm -hmm. and the mentor and the protege would engage in sexual activity, though it is important to note that penetrative sex with regards to men was something of a taboo. This was not appropriate. But they would engage in sexual acts, oral sex, um, other types of sex. Why would they do this? Well, Aristotle once called this relationship the only true love that can exist in the world, right? And if you think back to your first sexual experiences or your first girlfriend, there's such an intimacy and such a level of trust there, right? Mm -hmm. So if your desire 
for a society is to create a younger class of leaders who are going to take the reins and govern, it would be important to foster amongst those future leaders trust um, and affection with their current leaders, mm -hmm. right? And so the sex was not about the sex per se. It was about creating that vulnerability that sex allows us to have, that complete openness, that complete honesty, and that vulnerability where you can be trusting and open. Sure. Um, and so that was really the, the purpose of it. Now, of course, today, again, that, that's a pretty serious felony. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is okay. Obviously, I'm saying that this was the purpose of this type of relationship in ancient Greece. So yeah, I do think um, there is an intimacy involved in sexual activity that's really important um, and a good, an important component of being close to another person and living a good life. So let's talk about those extremes though. We agree, I think, that sex is important in terms of living your best life, living a good life. Can you live a good life and be celibate? I'm talking now of priests, I'm talking of monks, I'm talking of people who have committed to a life devoid of sex. I'm not sure if there's a simple answer to that, but what I am quite sure of is that we have to look at the term sex with a little more nuance. You know, I think about people who have basically dedicated them to a life of celibacy, mm -hmm. Catholic priests, nuns. The first thing I think we need to remember is that everybody cheats a little bit. If I'm on a diet, does that mean <laughs> I don't occasionally break my diet, even if I don't tell anyone? I Once say this while, because I... Do you doubt the, the honesty well, of celibacy? Yes, okay. because of autobiographies written by people who sure. were celibate. Sure. Also because of exposés from people who've discovered affairs, oftentimes with children against their will. But also, I lived in a city where there were who talks sex about your toys, city? sex toys in a particular store in a mall. I myself used to go into that store and buy different kinds of novelty items. Who did I see walking around inside these stores making purchases? nuns in their habits now i know that's hard to believe but yes ladies and gentlemen in their even habits? nuns wearing their habits not in disguise not halloween so we pretty confident they're real nuns walking Are around you sure it's in not the somebody just mall. doing this for shock value i uh, i if i'd seen it <laughs> once or twice maybe but seeing it multiple times uh, a little harder to imagine but so are people engaging in self-stimulation most likely, most likely. Um, can you engage in sexual behaviors that are not penetrative? You know, there's, again, I mentioned outer course earlier. I feel like that would violate your, I don't, I don't know. We'd have to get a priest. I don't know what their vow of celibacy looks like. Yeah. So, I'm think, pretty sure so I guess that's where I was going. That's where I was going, right? Is, uh, no, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I think for Catholics, it precludes, includes birth control, but uh, not, not masturbation I, necessarily. I, I, it seems to me, and I could be wrong. Again, it, it just depends on your definition of sex, right? So right. in a male-dominated, misogynistic world, men have sex. Women have sex done to them. Men are the victors, the, the ones who walk around with the clubs and drag the women around behind them. That's so weird, though. But, but yeah. To you, me. And, and so with that, the idea has been, historically at least, and to a, lar a large extent still is, 
that it's not sex unless it's a man and a woman in particular. And a man has to be doing something to the woman, specifically penetrating her, more specifically penetrating her in the uh, the vaginal opening, right? It's, yeah. It's, I, and so we even see that with well, let, with laws about statutory rape or rape, right? Yeah. It's, it's got to be. Why yeah. we have to define it. Like people don't that realize that it's rape if it doesn't include a penis or that if it doesn't include yeah. the vaginal opening. Yeah. Well, look, let's listen to this real quick. Thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Yeah, that's that's uh, Bill Clinton, right? Yeah, he yes. did not have sexual relations with no, that woman. No, he was playing right. mental no, gymnastics, right? He, no, games. was he? Or does he oh, buy into yeah. that misogynistic view of? I would say misogynistic. Oh, that's a good point. Times do did change. Did Bill Clinton believe have he was sex a- with Monica Lewinsky? Um, yes. Okay. Did he believe he was having sex? I'm not sure. Did his words suggest that? he was trying to be obfuscative or trying not to admit guilt, perhaps. I will say this. When I was in high school, the most intimate thing you could do with a boyfriend, girlfriend, was to have oral sex with them, specifically someone um, putting a penis in their mouth. Okay? All right. Today... I doubt most people would say that's the most intimate thing you can do. Most high school students today would probably say sex is the most intimate thing you can do, like putting a penis inside a vagina or inside an anal opening. Most most teenagers believe oral sex is more casual. It's more acceptable, perhaps. It's not as intimate. See, uh, I, I, I've never things, really made words, a distinction. In other words, times change. Things are different, right? Well, yeah, I do want to get into some of those uh, some of those stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, because I think they're really important, um, and some of the misogyny surrounding sex. Yeah, um, let's, uh, let's, let's do, do that. that on the yeah, let's do it. And we're back. Yeah, Jason, we were talking on the other side about um, our sexuality, especially men, it being tied to our our masculinity, our understanding of what it is to be a man. Um, and there are certainly, yeah, what does it all mean? There are certainly societal pressures for women, right? Um, absolutely, uh, much more so than men. Hypothetically, there is a guy who you know has sex with his wife, his wife would like a vibrator, okay? And he is put off by this. Not only is he put off by this, he's angered by this. He looks at this as some sort of betrayal, as yeah, if look. If this penis isn't giving you what you need, what do you need? You now, don't need anything else. Now, I I need to ask: Does his penis rotate or gesticulate or vibrate in some way? I, I don't believe so. Most, That'd be a neat most trick. Most human penises that I'm aware of are pretty monomorphic, right? They all look pretty much the same, and they they don't really <laughs> do a whole lot, right? They That's, they like they're just kind of have a hydraulic system that can make them stiffer or less stiff and that's, that's about it right? that's about it they don't do very much else no that's that's yeah. pretty much it okay and for a lot of women that's not enough or maybe they're just curious about things that rotate and sure and even if it gyrate. is enough right maybe something different what's wrong with something different right no oh. if you're if you're eating nothing but you know if you're eating nothing but chicken uh, sometimes you want to try a steak or or maybe simple more simple than that if you're eating chicken you just want to put a little hot sauce on it so why is it that some men mm-hmm. 
seem to be threatened by women's pleasure, women's sexuality, and women exploring that outside of traditional male, female, vaginal, penetrative sex? Well, I think, you know, perhaps religion has something to do with it. Certainly ignorance, a lack of education about what sex is, what it means, and why it's important to people is another. But I think we can go back to Freud. I think I mentioned this before. Freud had a view that there were two types of orgasms. I think you might remember from one of our former episodes, yeah, maybe our first episode. I think we did mention that. Um, and Freud believed that one orgasm was clitoral and the other one was uterine. And the clitoral orgasm, he argued, was the one that you'd have to manually stimulate the external part of the vulva, the lady's clitoris, right? And you could do that with your finger. I guess, suppose you could do that with um, some sort of sex toy, a dildo, a vibrator. But that was considered infantile. Freud even used the term, that's an infantile orgasm. Now, if you wanted to have an adult orgasm, right? Mm -hmm. Mature orgasm, the kind of orgasm that would bring you a child, Freud believed that you had to have a uterine orgasm. And he said those could only be achieved um, by having penetrative sex. Okay. So I guess a misreading, misunderstanding of female physiology, the way Freud must have misunderstood it or either overlooked it, uh, might make someone believe incorrectly that using a toy is kind of immature. I see. But I wonder how many good old boys out there like the hypothetical friend you just described have a reading or are even familiar at all with Freud's work. Yeah. I I think it couldn't be the, no, I I think, uh, you know, I think those type of men typically look at it. uh, And I'm sure you've talked to people about this. I think those type of guys look at it as some sort of an affront Mm -hmm. or an insult to their own masculinity. Yeah, sure. They're, uh, insecure in some way about it. You know, I, I wondered about this. Could it be the size of the toy? Could it be the color of the toy? Could it be all the, the bells and whistles, pun intended? Or just that it exists at all. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I watch a show uh, called The Righteous Gemstones. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No. It's uh, uh, the great John Goodman and uh, I think Adam Devine, uh, Danny, Danny McBride, okay. several others. It's a really humorous look at megachurches. John Goodman is the head of a church <laughs> well, that family good. called the Righteous Gemstones. That sounds anyway, good. That sounds good. One of um, the son who may not be completely heterosexual, right? Mm. He's got a couple of really buff friends that he hangs out with. They go around as part of their youth ministry and like buy all the sex toys from local stores, <laughs> trying to do the Lord's work. Oh, that's so nice. Of <laughs> Try explaining that one. When, Maybe uh, that's what your friend in the... Oh, yeah, so um, I think that's really interesting. I think that perspective on, uh, and you know, so there's another thing I wanted. We mentioned orgasms. Obviously, we know the function of male orgasm. Yeah. Right. Simple. From an evolutionary standpoint, mm-hmm. what is the purpose and function of the female orgasm? What Because obviously, sex is really important to women. Yeah. What is the evolutionary benefit? Well, there's a lot of different theories. I don't, I don't know in, if we have anything do we, do, well, do we see it definitive. In, do we see female sexual pleasure in the animal kingdom? Yeah, you do. You absolutely do, as evidence. Can you by, give me some examples? 
Well, I mean, almost every sexually reproducing animal you observe, specifically the primates, chimpanzees, particularly the sexy chimps known as the bonobos or the pygmy chimps, oh. uh, they love sex. They absolutely love it. It doesn't, doesn't seem to matter. I heard that bonobos have more sex than human beings. Of course, and it doesn't matter. And that's why you don't typically see them out at zoos because it makes parents, particularly <laughs> with small children, blush. Um, but there are some bonobos, I believe, at the San Diego Zoo. We can measure their the spasming, the muscle contractions of their reproductive organs, both external and internal, during sexual copulation. So we can we can sort of glean from that perspective that they're having an orgasm, both male and female. We can also but we don't know look at for their sure, facial right? expressions. Well, no, but I mean, honestly, have you ever asked someone to describe with words an orgasm? It's really kind of strange, particularly Why, when, what will they say? Well, when women describe it, generally speaking, um, it sounds very long-winded and poetic. And when men describe it, it sounds like they're just, I don't know, getting tickled or something. It, it's, it's inadequate no matter how you describe it with words. So, you know, about the only way Do we think we can that know men that, and women experience orgasm the same way? Uh, men probably believe that they do. I don't think that most women believe that, and I certainly don't think that most Scholars, starting with uh, people like Masters and Johnson, would believe that. No, because just when you look at the sexual response site, when you when you study sexual responsiveness from like excitation to plateau to orgasm to resolution, the thing that Masters and Johnson uh, wrote about and published a book about in around 1966 called The Human Sexual Response, you see that when you graph the human sexual response, just from a physiological perspective, using devices that measure blood flow, that measure myotonia or muscle contractions, you see a very different profile between the average man and the average female. Okay. First of all, the average man's profile is very short. <laughs> it looks like they are already excited before they ever even start to have sex. And then they go straight from excitement to plateau. They don't literally plateau. It's kind of strange using the word plateau. The chart goes from excitement all the way up to orgasm, then it shoots right back down very abruptly to resolution. And at the bottom of that chart, you could use that as a measure of time. So the average man only takes a couple of seconds to minutes to go from excitement to orgasm to resolution. <laughs> Women, on the other hand, it's way more varied. Their sexual response cycle seems way more complex. It seems way more heterogeneous. It looks very exaggerated in some ways. They truly do have a plateau. That's one of the right. stages they take the longest to move through is to go from excitement through plateau and then to orgasm, which might explain why so few women admit to having orgasms every time they have sex. So we, But back to your original question, do why, why do we believe women have orgasms? Yeah. Uh, one explanation is the belly button explanation, right? It's the um, men have orgasm men and women are pretty much homogen uh, are homologous we are embryologically equivalent we're cut from the same cells and tissue very little difference so if men are orgasming women are going to orgasm too it's kind of like i have an appendix you have an appendix more compelling arguments for why women orgasm include the upsuck theory yeah uh, I've put heard forth of this. by masters and johnson and but the it, idea it, here is that isn't the, that kind of limited though um, somewhat, but the idea is that if you orgasm and you're female, then your entire vaginal tube, the muscles inside there, as well as the uterine, the uterus itself all contract kind of in synchrony, and it might usher or move sperm up through the female reproductive tract, kind of like a moving, moving sidewalk in an airport, right? Mm -hmm. and it kind of moves you along pretty quickly. Uh, there's also evidence that when you are, when a female is orgasming, her cervix is 
is moving back and forth and dipping down into the floor of the vaginal tube where sperm is likely deposited by a penis. Mm. Uh, another one is the, the behavioral evidence for female orgasm. The idea is that females orgasm to select the right mate. Maybe female orgasm has evolved as sort of a way of assessing a mate's value. To some extent, we believe that women can choose and have always been able to choose across many species of sexually reproducing organisms whether or not they want someone to be the child's father. Now, they're not doing this consciously, but unconsciously, there's evidence to suggest that women can fertilize, say, eggs with some of the sperm that's been deposited inside her copulate organ and not other sperm. There's so evidence could she, yeah, so could she keep up with who deposited it and how good of a lover, how committed, how careful, how much time did they give? And so, you know, this, this, this seems somewhat logical, right? You, you have women, generally speaking, among humans who take longer to orgasm. There's more nuance that has to take place before they can orgasm. And if orgasm does increase your odds of getting pregnant, then it would stand a reason why women might adopt this consciously or unconsciously as a, a way of assessing a man's value, a, a mate's worth, if to the extent that she can get pregnant or not get pregnant I, I by that particular it, man's um, semen. Well, but there's a bunch of other ones. Well, I do think it's important, uh, you know, before we go any further with this conversation, Jason is not somebody up here just uh, guessing. Uh, about, this is not somebody who's just like, you know, I've, I've been around the block. I know what I'm talking about here. Jason is uh, somebody who actually teaches human sexuality and he's researched, uh, studied human sexuality for the better part of 20, 25 years. Yeah. So Jason is a resident expert in many, many ways. Expert-ish. But I do know who the experts are and I have read most of them and I know where to find them. So yeah, I try to stay in the know. Jason, it was interesting hearing you describe, Jason, it was interesting hearing you describe the cycles of sex because yeah. in pre-civilization, you know, pre-civilized homo sapiens, sex always took place outside. Mm. And so to hear the cycle of men being relatively quick, mm. yeah. um, men experience a sense of heightened awareness immediately following orgasm and it just makes complete evolutionary sense you're outside you're in danger you're always in danger yeah. from other animals from other people and so and, and when having sex, sex it might make a sneak attack even easier particularly exactly. if you're doing missionary style right exactly so when men finish they are ready to to leave fight or, or leave, leave. Yeah. And, and you know women it's quite the opposite yeah i'm it's, glad you brought that up i've actually posed this question to students over the years do you think that our preference for particular sexual positions, especially among people that we don't know when we have, say, casual sex, might actually sort of be rooted in some of this evolution? Specifically, yes. I think about yes. having sex from behind. If a man in particular is having sex from behind, is it a way to stay vigilant and to sort of take a 360-degree view while having sex so that no one can sneak up on you? Now, I say doing it with someone casually that you don't know because, well, there wouldn't be that trust, that knowledge. I'm not sure who knows you, who's connected with you. We're probably not doing it in the safest place kind of thing versus just lying down with someone and having sex in the more, 
um, how should I put this missionary type on top of someone position, which right. makes you quite vulnerable from behind. Unless, you know, you do it, Jack and uh, Rose and you're in a, in a car yeah. for like, I could think 30 seconds and or like ludicrous on a horse, on a bench, that's right. in a park. I don't know what position you'd choose on the 50 yard line. (laughs) It have to, it would have to be pretty quick, especially if there's a game going on. Well, and that, that actually suggests (laughs) something might be a foot evolutionarily speaking uh, regarding premature ejaculation. I mean, you know that premature ejaculation is the number one complaint males have about their own personal sexual performance. I did not. It's beyond impotence or the inability to maintain an erection is premature ejaculation. More men go into their physicians complaining about that related to their sexual experience than anything else. I'm surprised to hear that. If you think about it, however, being able to ejaculate quickly would be evolutionarily advantageous as well, particularly if you are opening yourself up to threat of attack, uh, particularly if you're a sneaky fucker, right? Like if you're not the alpha, then you've got to sneak around. And that means you're not going to have a lot of time with the alpha's uh, concubine or members of, right? The... Other thing I wanted to mention, isn't it interesting that men think that they should be or that they are enough for women, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm so much, and if, and if I'm not all that a woman needs, ever needs, ever dreams of, ever fantasizes about, then I'm not a real man. Yeah. And I, I, I would say take a look <coughs> at these charts I'm talking about, the sexual response cycle charts between males and females that Masters and Johnson published in 66 um take a look at conversations women have about sex when they're together Mm -hmm. if you come away from those two observations thinking yeah god made one man for every one woman (laughs) i mean seriously i've got the conversations uh, seaside uh, um, that is real anecdotal evidence, to, to, but that is really good evidence. That, well, the conversations I, that women have amongst themselves. I mean, there's a reason that Sex in the City became so popular. Absolutely. There's a lot of, and you know, have you ever? I've paid attention since that show. Yes. Like I would be sitting in a bar, and if there's two women behind me, it would I'm make like you blush, back right? And I'm like, holy god. Yeah. Like we don't talk like that. Yeah, I'm gonna need to go to the sex store. Yeah. Real quick. You've done a good job in touching on the biology and the evolutionary benefit of sex, of orgasm, etc. Why does it remain? So I was just listening to uh, a podcast from the New York Times. It was the Sunday Read, and it was talking about sex and seniors and the importance of maintaining a healthy sex life while you age. While you age, I mean, now we're, now we're way past the evolutionary benefit. So there's something more to human sexuality and human sexual activity than just, than just making copies of yourself. Procreation. And oh, I yeah. know it, it's, uh, we talked about the bonobos. I know yeah. everybody knows dolphins um, also mm-hmm. seem to have sex for fun. But what are some other reasons? What are some of the, what benefits? are some of the health benefits or the right. emotional well-being mm-hmm. benefit of continuing to have sex yeah, into you, your 50s, 60s? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, the fact that we need to have sex as sexually reproducing species so that we can make copies of ourselves is not a super compelling argument for why we do it because we do it so often and we seem right. so obsessed with it. First of all, think about the fact that it feels good to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an accident. In the same way, it tastes good to eat things that are high in fructose. I don't think that was an accident. If we could get a lot of energy from foods that were bland, that required a lot of chewing, like broccoli and roots and tubers, the kinds of things gorillas have to eat the most of, yep. then 
we would be really turned on by these foods and we probably wouldn't have as much type 2 diabetes or obesity. But that's not the way it is. Foods that are high in sugar that can give you a real quick burst of energy are typically soft and they're typically fruits are not as plentiful as, say, roots and tubers. They're only in season every now and then. So when you come upon one, if you're prehistorical species, right, some, some prehistorical man or woman, then you should get a huge explosion of excitement when you put it on your tongue. Likewise, sex is so inexorably linked to life that evolution and or some creator would necessarily need to make sure that we did it not just once, but many times. I, I think you mentioned to me that you'd learned that lionesses our lions have sex, you know. Yeah, they said three to four hundred times, to 400 in, a four times in a four day marathon. That isn't because they love sex or that they're hypersexual, that they're um, nymphos. That's because it's so damn difficult to get pregnant. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, the exception to sex is getting pregnant, not the rule. A right, lot of us true. think that's, it's that's the rule point. because if you do it one time and the <laughs> condom breaks, or if you do it one time, you end up pregnant and it's unexpected, then it feels like, man, sex is so easy to get someone pregnant when you do it. It's, but that's the not the case. That's no, not the case. No, most couples have to have sex for close to a year before they ever get pregnant. And even when they do get pregnant, that pregnancy is not necessarily always viable, as you may or may not know. Right, of course. Uh, something like 60, 75% of um, zyg not zygotes, blastocysts, uh, multicellular organisms, we'll call them, never really embed into the uterine lining. I didn't know. So they never even embed, right? They, they're they fertilized in the ov oviduct, the fallopian tubes. They cruise down. They're making copies of themselves. They get to the uterus, and they're about to what's called gastrulate, embed themselves into the uterine wall, right? Tuck in for 266 days of gestation of pregnancy. It just doesn't happen. Uh, the woman's period returns, and she basically menstruates that um, clump of cells right out which is a real tough one for the religious community to handle, right? Yeah. It's like they don't want to yeah. they don't want to promote certain types of birth control because they say that that's getting in the way of pregnancy. I'm like, "Well, nature is the greatest abortion doctor." Yeah. Nature takes a lot of pregnancies away, thwarts a lot of what would otherwise be pregnant. It's interesting to me that we acknowledge readily through research, through our own conversation, through our own experience that sex is an important part of life. And yet, we feel an inevitable shame and guilt about our own sexual pleasure. Yeah. You mentioned going into a, you've doctor. been at a sex store. Oh, doctor. I thought you were going to say the doctor's office argument are, are going into the doctor's office and my doctor showing a sign of embarrassment or showing a sign of discomfort. Exactly. Oh, about sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We can get to that later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but. when we go into these sex shops or something, mm -hmm. so there's that feeling that we're not really supposed to be there. I used to have the, especially yeah. so, I have it more in the United States, in Germany, where I used mm -hmm. to live. Yeah. The sex stores are stores. Yeah. There's not like. No different than Target. Nothing, or, no, there's nothing black and white over the, or nothing black over the no windows. No red lights on. Yeah. No, it's just. And, and then when you go into the You probably store, don't have the, the, the words sex shop reading right, written on the marquee out front either. Like we no, do in America. No, you just, you have a bunch of dildos. In, in America, it's typically Adam and Eve or, you know, something like that. Yeah, Plato's Closet. Or not Plato's yeah. Closet. Whatever is that, but. Um, but yeah, it's um, Lucifer's sword or something. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in Germany, it's just, you, you walk in and they're like, Hey, how you doing? Yeah. The guy's got a suit on and you know, they'll show you all the toys. Oh yes. Yes. We have this lovely toy here. They'll take it out. And, Samples of lotion. Yeah. Very. I mean, it's just like, 
Yeah. And so I'll tell you a funny story too. We went to, um, uh, we went to Pompeii a few years back and we took a tour of Pompeii and yeah. our tour guide took us to the brothel. Mm. Um, the red light district in Pompeii is marked. How do you find it? There are erect penises yeah. pointing the direction of the red light district all over the city. Ah, you can still see them. Priapus. Yeah. You know, the Roman fertility god <laughs> yes. named Priapus. And that's yes. the term, the medical term for an erection that lasts too long. Priapism. We, you know, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Priapism. Priapism is the name of, of, an erection of, a, of a side effect uh, of an erection lasting too long. If you take certain medications, you might have an erection that lasts too long. Yeah, that's Priapism, that would... and that that that's based on the Roman god of fertility, Priapus, who you sometimes see um, holding a gigantic penis with like a scale wrapped around it. The idea was you could measure uh, fertility by how large the penis was. See, I don't miss. I that's one thing I don't miss about being like eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, is just having you know, we when you would fly overseas. That's when I would get an erection that would just not go away. Oh, wow. But I don't know if it's something with the altitude or something. Or something. Yeah, I've I don't never know. heard of that. That's no, I'm telling you, there's something. you got to research that. I definitely that, need to. I've heard of the Mile High Club, but that takes it to a whole new level. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting club to join. Do people really do that? Well, it sounds like they would need to if um, you're getting an erection every time you get a mile in the sky. You'd need to go to the bathroom <laughs> and take care of yourself, right? Ugh, no. Well, that's that's against the law, you know. You can't, you can't masturbate in an airplane bathroom. No, but I think we have brought up a lot of interesting questions in this episode. Uh, one in particular that you mentioned, I really like. I'd love to hear if there's other scientists, other researchers who might know something about this. Please, you know, contact us, leave a comment. But this idea of why men seem to be so put off by or so insecure about their significant others being interested in something other. I'm curious, sexually speaking, I, I would be curious if women feel, if some women feel that too. Feel intimidated, feel threatened in some yeah, way. Yes, feel like, well, maybe well, I shouldn't be doing this. The, maybe on, I shouldn't the only do thing that. I can say, and I don't want to go too deeply into this, is that uh, when it comes to sex positive attitudes, when it comes to sexual education, it's, it's pretty clear that people who have the most sexually positive attitudes, people who are, say, raised in liberal homes, people who are knowledgeable about sex as a science as well as their own body as a an organ system that that works the same way any system would that has similar needs in terms of maintaining health they do tend to be more adventurous they tend to show less evidence of fear anxiety they tend to report more healthy relationships sexually they tend to report less sexual problems and so that might to some extent, be a nod for why we need to have more, not less sex education. Right, right. Which, which well, might bring us to a completely different conversation about sex absolutely. In, in K through 12 or sex in education. Well, speaking of, yeah, there's two more things I do want to get to in this episode. One is the other extreme. Uh, right now, I'd really like to talk about um, the other extreme. We mentioned celibacy. Mm. I am a skeptic of sex addiction. Okay. So you're, you're a skeptic that a skeptic. people can become addicted to sex or I, I, that I'm that's skeptic. truly a diagnosis? I'm, I'm skeptical that there can be something a, addictive about a biological imperative. Mm. I mean, this isn't consuming alcohol. Nope. This isn't drugs. No. 
This is something that we all have to do mm-hmm. as a species. Yeah. How can how it be, can it how be, can addictive? It be addiction? Or how can it be an addiction? How can you actually have a physical addiction to sex? Well, keep in mind, first and foremost, that addiction can take a variety of shapes, um, both physical, physiological, as well as psychological, right? You can have a longing for, you can have a desire for, you can be preoccupied with, you can fantasize about. And that, while not physical in the the sense that most people think about the physical, that you can kind of see on an x-ray, although you can put people in brain scans while they are thinking about sexual things. There's still very much a push or a pull, as it were, draw that you might get if you are psychologically addicted to something. But secondly, it's important that things are only psychological until they hit the brain. So once anything hits the brain, whether it's a drug, whether it's an image, whether it's a sound, it's got to get processed in the same brain that processes and metabolizes even chemicals. So I like to tell students when they're taking abnormal psychology with me or psychopathology that it seems as if there is and should always be a separation or a distinction between what's psychological and what's physical. But I would argue that everything's physical once it hits the brain. Uh, but finally, I guess that uh, makes sense. and finally, I think about just because it's natural, just because we need to do it, doesn't mean we can't overdo it. Like we, it's natural to eat, but do I need to eat 20,000 calories a day? It's natural to crave sugar, but do I need to go and buy you know, 100,000 calories worth of processed carbs at the grocery store? Humans can have and probably will continue because it's good for the bottom line in our consumer economy to create unusually, unnaturally powerful combinations of molecules that kind of hijack the brain's pleasure circuitry. That right. we have a, you know, a, a cornucopia of chemicals inside our bodies and brains. Uh, some people say that our brain is a pharmacy, right? Endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, you name it. And it makes perfect sense evolutionarily, biologically, that we would have these hormones because they help drive, motivate, thwart lots of our behavior. That we can become addicted to Man-made drugs is a testament to the fact that our biology works in this way. Man has done something our creator didn't. Man has taken uh, these naturally occurring chemicals, shaped them, reshaped them into abnormally powerful molecules that instead of making us experience a 10 on the pleasure scale, you know, Take cocaine and you get a 12 on the pleasure scale. Take heroin, you get a 15 on the pleasure scale. So likewise, you know, there's pornography out there probably that would let our brains dial it up to 12, 15, 20. I mean, think about it. The Internet has done something that, again, our creator never could have even envisioned. Given us on demand um, pornography that allows us to customize our searches, to fast forward, to stop, to rewind, to re-enter new search terms. Like we can really dial it in. If we waited on nature, we'd be eating broccoli roots and tubers and the occasional berry off the ground. Well, I did read. But we make Oreos. And if that's not good enough, you go to a state (laughs) fair and they dip them. Well, I actually read, there was a theory, and it's a theory. It's not not guaranteed. 
um, that one of the reasons that female gorillas engage in lesbian sex Ooh. is to excite the male gorilla. Or to piss off God and his followers. Could be. Yeah. Could be. I'm not to discounting To excite that. the male gorilla. That, it's, it's, it's a theory. There's for other reasons. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, uh, there's quite a bit of homosexuality in uh, in primates. Yeah. Quite a bit. Throughout um, the animal kingdom. Uh, yeah, there's there's actually a book, Bruce Bahamel, University of Michigan, I believe, wrote a book about 15, 20 years ago called Biological Exuberance. I think he was a student of the great David Buss from the University of Texas at Austin, one of those guys who turned me down for graduate study. Listeners, mistake. Yeah, big mistake. mistake. Big mistake, Dr. Buss. Uh, anyway, Bruce Biamel was one of his students, I believe, and he has written a book called Biological Exuberance. In this book, he catalogs 400 different species who have been shown to engage in homosexual sex wow um published but about do other animals i guess my, my other question before we get into mm -hmm. that do other animals enjoy watching animals have sex is that like that, that seems to be a uniquely human thing it's not believe it or not it's not i'm glad you asked that that's a great question is there any evidence that first of all animals watch animals having sex other than humans and secondly is there any evidence that they benefit from it in some way yes it turns really? out, yes, yes. I'm glad you asked that. So let's think about primates. Primates live in a in a hierarchical world, many of us, socially dominated by certain powerful members, particularly of the male persuasion. Sometimes the females dominate, but mostly the males are at the top of the hierarchy. They live in troops, so there's quite a few of them in most in most species of primates. Well, if one of the beta males, like the second or third uh, highest ranking male in a troop of say certain type of monkeys gets a little gets a little confident one day and wants to try to assert himself test himself out against the alpha let's say that he pulls up to the alpha starts a fight with the alpha and loses um, his testosterone will go down dramatically he will find himself potentially on an even lower rung in the social hierarchy at least temporarily if not for a long period of time and now it's, as you might imagine, it's not a good thing to stay down the hierarchy after you've worked so hard to build yourself up to number two or three. But at the same time, you've been beaten up pretty badly. You've been embarrassed. You can't go back and take the same approach and try to fight the alpha immediately. You got to go back later after you've had time to think or to re-strategize, to lick your wounds, so to speak. There's evidence to suggest that what some of these primates will do, I believe baboons are one of them. Uh, the researcher Robert Sapolsky talks about this in uh, several of his books, not the least of which is The Problem with Testosterone. He finds that baboons, after they've been beaten up, will go and look for opportunities to artificially increase their testosterone. And guess what? One of the things they found... They will watch other uh, baboons. Also some evidence looking at humans, particularly young men who've gone to basic training for a particular length of time. And when you're you, looking at one of those. Yeah, so you go to basic training, as you may or may not know. I'm not sure how your basic training went, but something tells me it's pretty grueling. I felt like I was, you know, 19 years old, I signed up for the clergy. So here we go. God. So, you know, a lot of people in basic training will report that, man, I got myself beaten, not just physically, but also emotionally, psychologically. Like, you're made to feel like nothing. And the whole idea, I guess, behind that is to put you down as far as possible and build you back up That's in the, the image idea. they want, right? Yeah. But now, what happens whenever you get your first release? You get to go back into normal society after you've been to Paris Island, 
um, doing your marine training for however many weeks. Uh, one of the things that men will do is to go out and they'll visit like a gentleman's club or they'll go out and get in a fight with someone. They'll go out and sort of yeah. test themselves. And it appears as though that's one way of, or several ways of increasing your testosterone. Um, I've heard of studies that found men during the middle of basic training, their testosterone is about as low as it is in prepubescent boys. How crazy is that? That's insane. They're not just they're not just putting you down <laughs> metaphorically. Like there's physical evidence that they are literally sapping vital hormones from your body. That this kind of stress, this kind of training, this kind of grueling indoctrination, if you will, reducing your testosterone. But here's the thing: if your testosterone is falling as a consequence of that, then your brain is likely not thinking about, not desiring it as much. So it kind of is the chicken and the egg. They kind of go hand in hand. Look, our hormone system is very different than That's any weird, other That's weird because I was going to ask you the opposite. I was going to ask you if celibacy could lead to deviancy. Well, I don't know about deviancy, but I, I think um, there's a variety of ways that you can handle feeling sexual, having a libido, feeling desirous, right? You can masturbate, of course. You can watch pornography. You can engage in sex with a consenting person of age. Um, but then, yes, there's obviously a lot, a lot of other ways, many of which are maybe not as pro-social, maybe, maybe even extremely taboo or even illegal. Testosterone falls when you lose, whether a fight, an argument, you lose at a game. Testosterone falls when you are depleted physically, you're exhausted. Uh, men that go to the gym and work out, they have lower levels of testosterone uh, in between workouts. I don't know if you know that, I which did. is what makes it so hard to get back in the gym and lift heavy the next time. One of the benefits of doing anabolic steroids isn't that it builds muscle on its own. It's that it gives you a quicker recovery. Right, right. right. So you can exactly. go in there and hit it again. So to get your T back up, to get your testosterone back up, people will get back into fights, get into arguments, watch other people get into fights or arguments, watch other people win at games. Right, right. right? I mean, you go to a football game on a Sunday, the winning team's testosterone it's going to be higher than the losing team. But what's even more dramatic is the, the fans of the winning team's testosterone. Oh, their yeah, testosterone sure, sure. rises and falls based upon how their team Sure. Is. And now, you know, now I'm thinking, of course, of, you know, the, the incredible violence of Roman gladiatorial combat. Yes. Uh, right after, and, and these games are incredibly sexual, right after the games would end in the day. You'd say have a mm -hmm. period of 90 days ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, They would sell a gladiatorial sweat mm -hmm. as an aphrodisiac. and But only from the winners, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Probably don't want the sweat from the loser. No. And uh, women, of course, would be waiting right outside the gate to, you know, offer their services, offer their prostitution services to patrons. <clears throat> and, wow. of course, it was that violence created a lot of testosterone and it was sexy uh yeah certainly so um with regards we, we forget illegal let's talk about taboo dr and ryan takes a look at our fascination with monogamy throughout history and argues that it's well, not, not everybody it's not monogamy but, but polygamy is the technical term i believe um for all sorts of poly relationships. So polyandry. But polyandry is when obviously you have um, more husbands. 
more males than females, right? right. And then polygyny, polygyny, which is more likely the natural approach to sex. And I say polygyny, not polygamy, because I was wondering if you're mispronouncing poly- that. No, polygyny, polygyny is when you have more females than males. And I think what's interesting about that is it just depends on whether or not you're rich or poor. If you're a man and you're rich, you can this probably is starting to sound like Aldous Huxley's hey, Brave New World. Listen, if you're a man <laughs> and you're rich, um, throughout history, you've been able to um, score, so to speak, sure. uh, more mates. And if you're a poor man throughout history, you've basically had to hope that you can find somebody, even if they're already mated. Now, what's interesting about polygyny versus polygamy, or polyandry, excuse me, versus polygamy, is that when you have societies where there's one female and she's um, dating multiple men, or she's she's partnered up with multiple men, perhaps living in the same home, it's almost always men who are relatives. So it turns out that even men who live in societies that are okay with sharing a female um, will only do so if they're sharing that female with blood relatives, which makes perfect sense right, from an evolutionary right, perspective, sure, right? Sure. I don't want to put too much effort and emphasis and interest and work into offspring that's not, at Yours. least in some way, sure, connected sure. to me genetically. Sure. The opposite is true when women are partnered up with multiple men. Men don't, men don't want to, uh, excuse me, Women are okay, it seems, uh, with being a sister wife. Like, sure. But not literally a sister. And right, a wife. right. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, you know, so I, I guess there's really not much to talk about with regards to deviance because I'm, I'm, it, like, what, yeah. what is deviance? Because it's so subjective. And if you're yeah. a consenting adult, um, yeah. go nuts. Like, who, who am I to judge, right? Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of different things to explore. I'm comfortable with some of them. I'm not comfortable with others. So who am I to judge? Yeah. Uh, Another book for the listeners who are interested in what Nelson's talking about, this idea that maybe nothing is really bad, especially because it's deviant, but maybe in, um, in some of our listeners' minds, maybe deviance is good. Um, sure. It reminds me of a book called Darwin's Rainbow. Darwin's Rainbow. This is uh, written by Joan Roughgarden. Joan is a trans female. Uh, who's also a college professor, I think, in biology, oh, who's written okay. this book. Um, and basically, it's this witty, kind of playful book that attempted to revolutionize our understanding of sexuality by celebrating um, diversity throughout the animal kingdom, right? Cool. And again, I think it's just one of the things that I love about teaching human sexuality is not the human sexuality part, but the non-human sexuality part, right? right. I find that talking about sex toys or talking about prostitution or talking about masturbation or gender bending do you uh, get cross-dressing like, is easier to talk about when you're talking about it among other animals because there's nothing um, do your students struggle with conversations they struggle with conversations about, about your humans but they don't struggle as much about conversations about other animals and honestly what other animals do would make the most prurient the most sexually deviant human blush. I mean, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that. In fact, one of my all-time favorite science educators who has a real strong background in this, uh, Dr. Karen Bonder from Canada, I've asked her, she's a Facebook friend of mine, I've asked her several times if she'd come on the show, I'm going to plead one more time. Anyone who knows Dr. Bonder, any of the listeners who know Dr. Bonder, please ask Dr. Kareen Bonder 
if she'd come on the show and discuss some of these things that I just made reference to. Throughout the animal world, there are examples, both cool. small and large, of organisms that will make the most prurient sexual libertine among humans blush. That's oh, yeah. Yeah, well, We're talking about penises that detach and float through the water and try to stab things. Uh, we're talking about, yeah. Well, that only happened to me one time. <laughs> so, look, uh, I did want to get into homosexuality and some of these. Other, but, you know, I almost feel like that could be a, an entirely different episode where we could do something on homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, LGBTQ issues, um, and all these things. Yeah, maybe we talk about the history and the future like of sexual rights. Sure, and it sounds like there's a lot that the animals can teach us. Absolutely. Now, the one thing I did want to ask, though, because I'm not a labels guy. Yeah. And, you know, my wife and I have remarked often how there seems to be a difference to me in terms of having sex mm -hmm. and the ability to have sex and the desire to have sex mm -hmm. and having a sexual orientation. Hmm. And, and this seems strikingly and specifically true uh, amongst women, but not only amongst women. I think of male prison populations. Mm -hmm. I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong. If I'm a man, I'm in prison, or if I'm a woman, and, you know, it's Friday night and something cool is happening right. or whatever, and I have sex with another man or I have sex with another woman, is that a sign of orientation? Or do you think desire can be separate from orientation. Absolutely, 100%. That's what I was thinking, I, right? I think there's so many examples of this. And I think when we talk about sexual orientation, when we talk about sexual diversity, when we talk about sexual rights, sexual movements, liberation, uh, in our upcoming, in an upcoming episode, uh, we should start by setting the table that way. Okay. Uh, maybe I'll help you set the table yeah. with respect to these different spectrums that I that's use great. when I'm trying to talk about differences between say a person's sexual orientation which typically has to do with who you're primarily attracted to versus say your sex which is what you get at birth which may not always agree with how you feel which right. sometimes sociologists call gender right. uh, so yeah uh, and maybe we should have done that before we started talking about sex today i, I think i kind of alluded to it in a flippant way no, when i, I think said it could be a verb or a noun no, yeah, sure, but sure. the truth I is think, it can refer to i think it's an act yep. it can also refer to a um, type of biological tissue. It sure. can also be a um, um, a way of describing someone who is quote sexy. So that sometimes it's confused or conflated with attraction. Are you sexy? Right. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a great uh, future episode. Uh, but as we wrap up, yeah. I want to talk about um, before I ask you for our diagnosis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this will be an interesting diagnosis. diagnosis. I want to talk about. Um, what we, what our listeners should be teaching our kids about sex. Uh, I can tell you, I've got a lot of weird looks when we talk about sexuality and the history of sex in, in Britain and, you know, in America. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about the 20s. I, I tell my students, I guess the one word I would want to teach is consent. Sure. And, but after that? To know yourself. But those are the two things I teach my kids is consent and to to know yourself. Yeah, know think, yourself. Uh, well, my kids are much younger than yours, but what I can tell you is that my wife and I both agree that we're not going to lie to our kids about anything. Uh, that, that, that includes when we don't know the answer to something. We are going to 
recommend. We're going to reach out to people who understand um, or perhaps have more expertise in talking to kids about things, whether it be sex or, or otherwise. Gotcha. But, yeah, I'm definitely going to try my best to talk about sex with my children openly and honestly. Again, always in an age-appropriate way. Of my course, kids are only six course. and eight right now. But I'm not going to cutesify or candy coat or say things that are contradictory or otherwise cause more problems or questions for my kids, right? right? I don't want my kids to think that at this age, six and eight, I don't want my kids to think that um, Mother Goose brings children. Uh, I don't, stork. I don't, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also don't want my kids to think that every man out there is a predator who wants right. to inappropriately touch them. Have I talked to them about good touch and bad touch? Yes. But I'm not suggesting to them that they can't trust any strangers. Again, I'm trying to tread that line a little more carefully. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah. At 14 and 15. Communication, I guess. Open communication would be mine. Consent and open communication. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, it's, it's funny. At 14 and 15, no, I, I'm, I'm with you completely. I don't lie. But there are, it was a couple months ago, uh, my wife thought she, uh, she's had her tubes tied, but she thought she might be pregnant. Oh, wow. And um, my daughter said, how is that possible? No, she said, when's the last time y'all had sex? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> all I, uh, my parents, like your parents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how many brothers and sisters you have. My parents had sex three times. Yeah. I know that. You know that That's for a fact. fact. That can't, is a can't fact. Can't be certain that it happened any more than that. I know it didn't happen. It was three <laughs> yeah. times yeah. and three times only. Yeah. But she said, you know, when's the last time? And then she asked, did you follow up? Intercourse. They had she, intercourse then she, three times. That's right. And then she followed up and said, how often do you guys have sex oh anyway? So we didn't lie. We just pretended that we didn't hear that question. We just we just told her. We said, you know, what a bizarre question. Do you, is that something you really want to know? Yeah. I said, oh, I'm just curious. But you know, I mean, okay. maybe maybe that is good. At least it tells you that you've built a healthy enough relationship and line of communication with your kids that they feel comfortable enough asking that. I mean, you you do realize that Could when you ask healthy. when you ask people these kinds of questions, like students in particular they either don't believe or don't want to believe that their parents have ever had sex or are currently having sex. There's this taboo around thinking about sex. Um, there's this taboo about thinking that your parents or your grandparents are having sex. But the truth is, it's they natural, are. normal. Sure, sure. It's a sign of, of good health, if you think about it. Not, sure. just, not just within the relationship itself, but also good health in the sense that you've got to be pretty healthy to do it. Sex is a calorie-expensive sort of endeavor, right? And anyone who has arthritis knows how terrible, uh, terribly oh, difficult sure, it is to sure. do anything, sex notwithstanding. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's something we could talk about, you know, all day long, these little nuances, these little nuggets, these the science behind all of these kinds of things, right? The kinds of things that make you sort of reappraise or look at someone in a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. How easy it is sometimes. Sometimes it's as simple as, Taking a hot shower and shaving. Sometimes it's as simple as a new outfit. Other times it's as simple as, you know, um, a dinner or um, uh, having a night out without kids. Or, yeah, in some cases, a little more expensive. It's a cruise, $7,500 cruise, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So, you ready? Let's, uh, you know, you're definitely the expert on this topic, as I said. Um, the, you know, and I, I hope people will sign up for your class. Cause yeah. Sounds like an interesting course. Um, Where would I put sex? Give me a diagnosis. I'm going to diagnose sex as 
completely and utterly normal. I'm going to say <laughs> that even variations oh. or diverse uh, representations of sex, provided that it's consensual, it doesn't hurt anyone, break anyone's trust. I would argue it's absolutely, completely normal. Um, I would give sex the diagnosis of psychologically and physically flourishing. All right. That's a good diagnosis. Yeah. Even for even for addiction? Uh, so I guess there are, even in the medical community, there are variations on variations, normality that yeah, could yeah, be. Yeah. So I, I, I like that. Psychologically flourishing. Yeah. Flourishing. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think our listeners have plenty to chew on, plenty to think about. Um, I guess that's it, man. Thank you to our guests. Yeah. Uh, I think we should have them play us out again. See you next week. See you, buddy. Uh, uh, I want to get you in the Georgia Dome on a 50-yard line while the dirty birds kick for three. And if you like it in the club,